right. Welcome back to Global Supply Chain Week, day four, Anthony Smith. And this is Freightonomics. Now, normally on Freightonomics, we discuss lots of different things. Yeah. <laughs> Today, though, we've got two special guests, right? We Anthony? do. We do. And I'm excited about this one because, as you said, usually we do this on Thursdays, once a week. Sometimes we have a guest, sometimes we have the great Zach Rogers, but right now we have double the treat with two great guests. And if you do not know, this is Freightonomics, so where we bring freight and economics together. This is Zach Strickland, Director of Freight Market Intelligence, also known as the Sultan of Sonar. I'm Anthony Smith, Lead Economist here at FreightWaves, and together we bring freight and economics. It's a beautiful relationship as they kind of intertwine together. It's all supply and demand, and we talk about it here. Yeah, yeah, and and today, of course, we're going to have two guests uh, that we'll get to here in just a second, but it's hopefully you've been enjoying your uh, global supply chain week. Today has been the automotive focus day, and of course, the automotive sector, a little bit turbulent <laughs> right now, and I, you know, Anthony, I'm not really sure how much the Canadian <laughs> influence had on it at this point, but we've certainly talked about it a lot, and we'll hit on that a little bit later with one of our guests, but first up, who do we have today, Anthony? So we have someone who is a, an amazing, it's an amazing honor to have this guy on because not only does he have his company as a sponsor, but he's also a wealth of knowledge as well. We have uh, Mufasa Azizi. Mufasa, thank you so much for joining us. You are the co-founder and CEO, or founder and CEO over at Zoom. Thanks so much for joining us this, uh, this afternoon. It's good, man. It's uh, Mustafa. It's all good. <laughs> Mustafa. <laughs> Mustafa Azizi. <laughs> yes. There Thank you go. so much for joining us today. How are you? That's okay. That's been happening to me since like fifth grade. So, you know, like, I actually love it. <laughs> I'm good, man. Well, great to have you back on. It's been some time since, well, I think we've had you on Fred Lewis Air, but on Freightonomics, as I know, our first time. For those who may not be familiar with you, can you give us a quick summary of Zoom and what you guys do over there? Yeah. So um, through the years, our business model and our value offering has evolved into a focus. And essentially, uh, we do two things. We help uh, stakeholders find capacity in the fragmented market space that where most of the trucking companies are small and medium. And then number two, we help companies with um, hyper automation in terms of developing marketplaces for them to become more digital or just helping them with their back office operations and lowering those touches. Yeah, so Mustafa, uh, you know, Lion King jokes aside uh, for, for the moment, I'm sure you've heard plenty of those too. Uh, the, you know, you, you talked about automation and hi, hyper automation like that. I would love to dive in a little bit more on that and what, you're, what you mean because I, I know the supply chain itself has been obviously extremely turbulent. <laughs> And employment has become even more of a challenge uh, here over the last several months. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you mean when you're talking about automation, especially in the current environment. Well, yeah, when we started our company six years ago, uh, our tagline still today is automate your freight, right? And more recently, people are talking about this uh, new term called hyper automation. But ultimately, what uh, hyper automation is, it's an aggregation of uh, a bunch of philosophies to help automate and lower your operational expense for any organization and supply chain. Um, it involves three steps. Number one, what you want to do is you want to vet all the processes that are really uh, laborious in your company. Number two, you want to identify laborious processes that could be made more efficient. And number three is you want to employ automation. 
And when you look at hyper automation, it's not only through AI and machine learning, but it could be through RPA. For example, there's a company, um, and we have this as part of our product right now, where you upload documents and a scanner reads it and then does all the data entry that normally people would do and it takes a long time. Um, also, it's uh, hyper automation is also focused on partnering with other softwares that are low code or no code um, take-ons for the company that could be initiated quickly to bring ROI. And when you kind of like couple seven or eight of those philosophies together, you come up with this new term called hyper-automation. A lot of the companies, they're focusing on the front end of looking good to customers and carriers, but you have to complete the holy trinity, which is the vendor, the customer, and the employee. And when you complete that holy trinity, that's where you can actually uh, get to like really monumental changes within your organization. Yeah, I think that's fa fantastic, especially when you're talking about having to automate throughout those three uh, participants. Um, I, you know, integration is obviously an extreme challenge. Uh, have you had any, you know, significant trouble kind of working through some of that? Yeah, so um, in the beginning, uh, we have like a lot of automotive customers and they use uh, older ERP systems that they don't want to get off to because they're so reliant on it. Um, the one common thing when I speak to automotive customers, which we have like three of the largest in North America that we're doing business for, um, they say that like we put so much work and effort into our infrastructure and our TMS system, we don't even want to change it, even if it means like living in the 1970s because there's so much money reliant on those systems. So number one, we had to learn to integrate to older systems. Um, the, the challenge for us is we've been trying to become a collaboration platform in a way that our product can offer most of what they want. But if they want to integrate a third-party software, uh, we have RESTful APIs so we can really do it easier for them. Um, but sometimes it's a challenge because the third party you're integrating with, their business is a startup or they're not really well established or they're slow to respond. And then the third piece of integrations is um, whenever a, a stakeholder comes to us, they have to have a task force ready and able to implement these things on their side. Sometimes the hardest challenge is getting them to move. So Mustafa, I think everyone has really seen the type of automation, the freight tech that's really kind of emerged from this pandemic that we're in the midst of, I think still, or Zach, is it endemic? <laughs> but we've seen tons of freight technology come through. And really, I mean, when we're looking at innovation, we're looking at automation, it seems like this is just is the future. You know, when you're looking at, of course, what you're doing is going to be impactful for the supply chain. But you've been doing this before the pandemic, before the spotlight was on the supply chain. When you look at the pain points within supply chain, what are some of the biggest hurdles we have to kind of overcome over the next 12 months? Yeah, um, I mean, we were blessed and lucky. Uh, maybe it was because like we weren't a huge company, but we grew 3x during the pandemic. And I think a lot of that um, has to do with our technology. But if you're looking across like the globe in the whole industry, I think some of the biggest issues right now are procurement, um, workforce management. There's a huge bubble forming in high overpaid salaries and like jobs are hard to find in the market. Um, fragmented systems with suppliers, like they might use another system and obviously procurement and getting supplies is so big. I think those are the immediate things. And also maybe um, nearshoring, right? There's like a change from offshoring to far away places to now nearshoring to closer countries. That's pretty interesting to look at right now as well. 
So Mustafa, that was a lot of stuff that you could break. (laughs) Yeah, no, you you did. You did hand us a lot of stuff to unpack here. So I want to, I want to unpack one of those items here in in the way that you're talking about uh, automating kind of some of this kind of low level activity. I want to say like where you're talking about replacing some of these billing processes or uh, maybe some receivables processes in there. Uh, Has there been any resistance to this concept as you've approached some of your uh, customers? Well, Number one, um, a lot of uh, stakeholders out in the industry, like they're kind of set in their ways. And for them to introduce uh, a new solution, it's still hard for them to swallow just being realistic about it. But I think so much noise in our space of moving towards hyper automation and moving towards um, logistic deficiency across the board has really changed the hearts and the minds. And we're finding more and more people ready to accept this change and initiate it. The challenge comes in finding a beachfront customized to each customer where you could crawl, walk, run. Because, um, yeah, you know, like Zoom, we want to redefine the global language of supply chain and get everybody speaking the same language in a front office and back office perspective. But if we're ever going to do that, we can't just go out to the market and try to boil the ocean. Um, that's why all our solutions are modular. and We just try to find a small beachfront. In the beginning, um, when we started and, you know, we we're like 10 employees, I used to try to sell everybody everything as a CEO. But now, um, you know, six years, 10,000 hour rule in the game. The first thing I do when I get onto a team is I try to really identify one small core problem where we could get our foot in the door and then open up their um, adherence to like these bigger philosophies that are kind of resonating within our industry. Yeah, I love that. It's kind of like what my dad used to say, uh, you know, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. (laughs) So, you know, that's exactly what you're, the the analogy that works there. So have there been any of these challenges that you found are more prevalent uh, amongst your, uh, you know, your target customer base that you've seen so far? Well, so... Yeah, well, one of the biggest ones, honestly, is uh, like that company that's wanting the change. They allocate the funds, to change, but it's hard to get a task force from them behind the project. And here's the other problem. Sometimes companies like will share just enough with you when you're trying to bring them a solution. And uh, agile product development and product market fit says that everybody's in the same team. We're very transparent between the two teams. And you have to have like systems that um, you test before with both stakeholders. But some corporations, you know, they 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 want you to show all their car your cards, but then don't want to show the other side. And you have to kind of win them over. And that kind of ties into the first thing I was saying. But that's like uh, a necessary thing that you have to overcome when you're bringing change, you know, whether you're conquering a country with your army or bringing a new technology into an industry. Mustafa, with what you're doing over there at Zoom, it's, you know, transformative, this hyper automation um, movement that you have right now that's going on. When you think about sometimes this automation, a lot of times some people think, hey, this means I'm out of a job. I'm going to be replaced. When you look at how this gets implemented, because it's only really a matter of time until it really continues to spread throughout the industry. How do you see this really transforming the segment? How do you see this really either aiding or maybe even replacing some individuals that may have that fear? I think um, you can have two perspectives about um, 
the whole topic and both sides have to be respected and heard for you to move forward. However, if you look at our industry, we're the furthest behind in technology across the board when it comes to like medical and, and uh, you know, like search engines and other uh, B2C markets and whatnot. And what technology has shown is that, first of all, our industry for years were begging for less fragmentation and more efficient systems. In my 15 years being a freight manager and not only a CEO, I remember the biggest complaint from employees and my peers was that we're always doing like endless tasks on multiple systems. So now when this change comes, you have to win the hearts and the minds of the people. But ultimately, um, this kind of change, it doesn't displace the employee. It enables them to become stronger like RoboCop. And they can do less mindless tasks and get more job done. If you go across the board and ask all the supply chain managers in the world, how much of their work is being just wasted on mindless tasks? I bet you 70% of them would say, there's a lot of my time being wasted. So if you need that change, then you need these tools. I don't think we've gotten to that complete like AI and hyper automation of 10 years from now with, um, with self-driving trucks and whatnot, where anybody should be worried about that. I 100% agree. I, I, I normally give a story about how, you know, if you think about where we were in like the 1970s and all the technology growth that we've seen from that point to this point, and we're all as busy as we've ever been. So automation is definitely not something to be afraid of. And I love your point about, uh, you know, a lot of this automation is around stuff that nobody wants to do anyway. You know, you come out with a college degree and you don't want to go into data entry, <laughs> uh, you, you know, and things like that. So I really, I, I think that's a good point to really hone in on is that automation really replaces the jobs that people really aren't looking to get into anyway. Uh, and that's a good point. But kind of in on the, as along the same lines of, uh, you know, we've seen obviously a lot of freight tech uh, come into this space over the last two years for sure. Do you see a point where we're maybe starting to start to saturate the market a little bit in that regard? I mean, there's a lot of copycat products out there. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of products that as a corporation, once you get into the value chain offering that they have, it, it doesn't have depth. Um, like, for ex uh, example, we really focused on our first product of helping brokers digitize, right? And getting them to market quick. And when they dive deep with us, they can see that our product can dive deep. Yes, some of those companies that are coming out are fluff or AI-based companies, like everybody's now an AI-based company when only like 1% of the scientific world even knows how to do proper AI, right? But everybody, there's millions of AI insight companies now, but it's an evil because we need a technological revolution to come into our industry. And this is like the baby stage of that revolution. If we're already thinking that it's too saturated, then obviously we don't have any procurement issues and the global supply chain is running perfect. And so talking about the global supply chain, I mean, there's always these hot topics that's hitting the, the, the industry. You're talking about, okay, is there a driver shortage? No, there's not a driver shortage. Is there a driver utilization? Or is what's happening with capacity, warehousing? Um, there's so many issues with going on within the supply chain. Is there anything that pops onto your radar that not a lot of people are really paying attention to that really can be an underlying trend that really could snowball into something huge later on? Yeah. Um, so number one, obviously hyper automation, right? The more companies use hyper automation, the more op 
uh, operational expense there can they can reduce. But you can also apply hyper automation mixture with existing peer vendors and customers and grow that. The second thing is like um, collaboration platforms. So many big solutions and market leaders in the space, but none of them are working together. That's why we champion collaboration. And um, I'll tell you why this is important. Think about if you just combined um, 30% of the freight RFPs that shippers give on an annual basis and send a global RFP and focus hyper automation towards getting access to the 90% of the carriers that like are out in the market and you can't even find them, then you're going to have so much ROI for the global industry that it's going to be like crazy. So again, but again, it's like crawl, walk, run. So anything, a uh, third piece that I'd really focus on, anything that um, focuses on making the trucking company or the drivers happy, um, retaining them, acquiring them, because there is a driver shortage, whether you like it or not, it's there. And we need better systems to illuminate that dark capacity, uh, I'd like to call it. Yeah, so all great points. The uh, One of the things that people have been talking about is that this is kind of an anomalous cycle. Like once COVID goes away, everybody will just stop paying attention to the supply chain and all that. I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on why you think that's right or wrong. I would, I would assume you'd think that's wrong, <laughs> as, as a lot of people would. Uh, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, maybe, you know, explaining how the current environment may evolve uh, and some of this forward-looking uh, aspects to the industry after the pandemic and all its this kind of current disruption uh, settles out. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, there's uh, like events that have like certain triggers onto the way that we do business, and then they go away. Then there's events that happen to bigger systems that actually impact and change a new drive. So with uh, pandemic and in the 2015 port strikes. Um, I don't think lower freight rates are going away. Um, I don't think the driver shortage is going away. I think there's a new culture of people wanting to work from home and remote, and they're pushing more on that. So we are having some changes. And um, honestly, like, we need to just kind of keep our eye on the ball and, like, kind of treat this like, if you, if you start becoming an economist, because most economists say that this is going to hang around, they used to say for three years, now they're saying indefinitely. So basically just look around you, you know, look at your company and look at the problems and just focus on changing stuff internally and establishing system where you can collaborate with your partners to mitigate this. Uh, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I don't know if that was the answer you're looking for, or if I properly answered everything, every point there. No, I think that was great. Um, Anthony, I mean, you, you agree, right? I mean, this is, I, I, th I think my point with that question, and I think you kind of ha handled it just fine, the, uh, is that, you know, we tend to pay attention to problems after the after the fact, after they've become significant enough for us to start to try to solve them. And I think what you're saying is, you know, none of these problems, a lot of these problems aren't actually new. <laughs> We're actually just paying more attention to them. <laughs> and, and they're going to persist because they happened before the pandemic and throughout. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. And there's a ton of funding that's come in behind these. And like a lot of these VCs, they like to call them they're pregnant now. Mm -hmm. So they have to keep pumping money into these solutions. And uh, just recently, last week, I saw an article that said all the big VCs that were kind of like looking at the smaller VCs jumping into the space are now coming in. And they could push towards the same, uh, the wrong direction in terms of grower bust mentality. But I think we have really strong uh, managers in the um, 
in our industry and we'll come up with a really good um, hybrid solution moving forward and things are going to get better. And Mustafa, I definitely have to congratulate you on the growth that you've had over these last uh, year and a half and throughout the pandemic and really um, what you've been able to do before the pandemic, before some of this stuff was really cool and mainstream news. Um, if people want to reach out, how can they find you? Yeah, uh, so they can go on our website, which is zoomapp.com. Uh, they can hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, we have solutions for shippers, trucking companies, as well as brokers. And our claim to fame, okay, is that we can bring in um, unitary solutions or larger solutions really quickly. Excellent. And also, thank you for being one of our amazing sponsors. We appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks. All right. And it's really changing our industry. Very cool, man. Well, thank you so much and have a great rest of your week, uh, Mustafa, not Mufasa. All right, Chris. <laughs> Appreciate you. All right, man. Well, you know, it is it is a, it is something that I think people kind of, you know, the, the ending points there about how we kind of start paying attention to things a little bit more when they become, it's kind of like that scratch yeah. that you, you have a scab on. And you don't really care about it. And then all of a sudden, like, you've got something that kind of rubs up against it and it starts bleeding again. Yeah. You're like, ah. Oh. And, and I, I feel like, you know, that's kind of a minimalist way of looking at what we're dealing with on the supply chain side. But I think a lot of his points are well spoken in the way that we're in this environment that exacerbates problems. Yeah. And whether we, we might have been sort of trying to solve them before, but now we really got to fix them because right. there's a lot of money in it. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's tons of money in it. And of course, one of the big things that comes to me, it comes to mind is just like, hey, there is, as always comes back to supply and demand. And mm -hmm. when there's a disruption, sometimes the, the, the supply is shifts in a sense. <laughs> and now we have the wrong supply or maybe the demand isn't quite there. And this, that misalignment just kind of goes over one another and you see this market inefficiency that's really frustrating sometimes to a lot of analysts, a lot of economists alike, but we have to keep it moving and move forward. And with that, we also have our next guest here. Someone that I chatted with not too long ago is Sal Macagliano, someone that you might be familiar with here on the Freight Waves Air if you've tuned in before. Sal, thanks so much for joining us today. I don't know if we have audio on Sal. Is that is that me or is that? <laughs> yeah, I think I think the audio might be out. But while we are working on, while we are working on that, <laughs> okay. we are yes, going yes, yes. to just kind of jump into some potential trends because I want to chat with Sal about one of the things that he brought to my attention was that there was a little bit of a disruption happening. I think in some of the automotive industries here, slight, slight. <laughs> Yeah, some slight <laughs> might, disruption. Might ask about inflation as yeah. well. So yeah. we'll see uh, if we have Sal's audio on. Is that up and running? Can you guys hear me now? There we, we go. We can. Yes. Ah, 2022. We still go. have the audio. <laughs> Good so, deal. Sal, thanks so much for joining us this morning or this afternoon, uh, this evening, I should say. Um, when we're <laughs> depending on which coast you're on, of we course. can't tell. It's so dark here. We can't tell if it's day or night. It's, it's just a, it's a party here on the yeah. global supply chain week. <laughs> but um, thanks so much. You guys for have been going like a marathon. It's, it's been a marathon for you guys. Like I'm surprised you even know what week it is. I don't know. That's a good point. Know. That's a good point. I do. <laughs> Anthony actually reminded me what day it was last week when we were on the show because I didn't really. I I totally lost track. <laughs> But Sal, thanks so much for joining us. We were chatting earlier today and talking about some of the disruptions and also this being automotive, 
I think you have a little bit of news and some of the impacts of around a certain situation that's happening. Yeah, we got word uh, last night that a car carrier, the uh, motor vessel Felicity Ace of MOL lines, had caught fire. The uh, ship was about 100 miles southwest of the Azores. She was en route from Emden, Germany, for Davidsville in Rhode Island, loaded to the gills with about 4,700 Volkswagens and Porsches. Uh, the ship reported a fire on the cargo deck. The crew attempted to extinguish it, but was unable to get the fire under control. The uh, ship was abandoned by the crew. Fortunately, there was a uh, nearby vessel, the Resilient Warrior, a tanker, and the Portuguese Coast Guard out of the Azores was able to sortie, and all 22 of the crew have been rescued, put on board the Resilient Warrior, and then flown ashore. Right now, salvage operations are taking place. They're, they're trying to get a uh, tow line onto the vessel and get it back into port, but this load of Volkswagens and Porsches obviously were crucial for them to get across. A lot of questions about what started this fire. Uh, EV cars, electrical vehicles, and hybrid cars have been a cause for several fires on board car carriers recently. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I feel like we're in the middle of a breaking news story here with you, Salvi. I mean, that's fantastic that the uh, they saved all the crew, crew, and that's wonderful. But I would be interested to know exactly what, we don't know what vehicles uh, specifically were on this ship or how many of them. We know there's 4,700 on there, and they're Volkswagens okay. and Porsches. And car carriers, uh, you know, when I explain car carriers to people, it's like a parking deck in a mall. Just imagine, instead of parking like you normally do in a mall, you go to the very top deck and you fill in as many vehicles as you can. So they're bumper to bumper, door to door. And while EV vehicles are extremely safe, the danger here is loading vehicles onto a car carrier. There's minimal fuel in the vehicle. So if there are gas or diesel, you only have a few gallons of fuel on board. The batteries are usually disconnected. We know that there was pretty calm water. We've seen pictures of the vessel. So we knew the vessel hadn't been rocked. So cargo hasn't broken loose. But loading that many vehicles sometimes will cause damage to the batteries or there may be an improper unhooking of the batteries. And all you need is for one electrical vehicle to catch fire. And once you, you, you crack the lithium ion batteries, I've been a firefighter for 20 years now. I can tell you right now, a car fires are one thing, but electrical car fires are another thing. And while they're normally safe on the road in a confined environment like a, like a vehicle carrier, it's very dangerous because the, the car fire jumps from car to car, from deck to deck. And unless the crew can isolate it very quickly with carbon dioxide to kind of knock that fire down, it gets out of control very quickly. In this case, we saw the crew forced to abandon ship. And Sal, when we see unfortunate events like this, sometimes, you know, fingers get pointed and sometimes just like, hey, we need to just shift or change a certain policy or rule on how things are done. With this happening, do you see that there could be any kind of potential of a rule change, any kind of new regulation, anything like that? when we look into the transport of these vehicles? Well, you know, this same company had a similar fire about three years ago in 2019, right? Right at January 1st of 2019, a sister vessel of this had a fire in the North Pacific. Similar occasion, uh, we had a vehicle fire on board. Both these ships have been Panamanian registry, which means that the government of Panama is the one that's in charge of the investigation. We have yet to see the report come out of Panama for the ship fire from 2019. Obviously, any sort of changes that need to be done could impact cargo operations. What that means is we can slow down cargo operations, which has a net effect in, in 
you know, raising costs for transportation. So there's an impetus not to go ahead and make changes. However, we've seen just a series of accidents involving car carriers over the past decade. Everything from Golden Ray capsizing coming out of Brunswick, Georgia, to now this vessel coming across. We recently had a vehicle fire on board a car carrier, uh, the uh, um, uh, Ho Jamin down in Jacksonville. That was found to be improper uh, hookups for the batteries. The batteries were not properly unhooked, and so a spark caused creating the fire. So there's a lot of impetus for reform on this, but the question is, will it be pushed down from the International Maritime Organization down to the ship registries and enforced by the port state controls? In other words, for us, the U.S. Coast Guard when they board these vessels. Man, that's fascinating stuff. So outside of like the regulation aspect of it, do you see any other kind of broader scaling impact to either, you know, the way other people are you know, receiving their cars, getting their cars, producing cars uh, outside of the regulatory space. Do you think this is going to have any other disruptive effects? Well, actually, what we're seeing is, is a slew of disruptive effects across the board right now. So, for example, uh, you have several car carriers off the port of Houston right now waiting to get in, but they can't get into their car docks because Amazon and a batch of other companies have chartered geared cargo ships to get in there and offload. So the docks that normally sometimes are used for car carriers are now being used by these container ships. And so, you know, one sector of the maritime supply chain is not really independent of the other because there's they're spillover effects. Obviously, the biggest impact is going to be the 4,700 people whose cars are now probably going to be totaled as a result of this fire on board. But again, it could cause immediate problems in the port of Emden, for example. They will slow down cargo operations, ensure that cars are being loaded more carefully. And again, any sort of safety condition slows down the process. Uh, loading a car carrier, I've been on car carriers before, loading them is quick, it's fast. There's a lot of movement going on at that time. And you need to be able to get in and out of port at set amount of times and work your way up and down the coast. And so these disruptions caused by an uh, accident like this can resonate. Uh, fortunately, with no loss of life, it's a question about whether how serious we're going to take a look at this and implement it. We've had car carrier fires and accidents where we've seen the loss of life. And unfortunately, it's been slow to enact changes throughout the industry. Yeah, so when we look at this, do you know if there's any precedent for, uh, precedent for um, there being a shift and how certain shippers or, or I mean, sorry, carriers or ports really kind of operate within this? Okay, maybe there's not a regulation, but maybe um, this carrier refuses to work with vehicles or this port has their own types of rules to say, hey, we're not going to take this um, this freight coming in. There, there was an industry study that was done with the advent of EV cars and really the, the proliferation of them because they're so much different in their handling than diesel and gas. There was an attempt and, and there still is an attempt to segregate out that cargo to create separate car carriers because of the need. For example, you really don't want to use water on an electrical car. You just don't want to dump a huge amounts of water on it. Yet that's one of the methods that are used to extinguish car fires, EV car fires on the road. What you really need is, is more carbon dioxide and, and systems that can really cool that fire down. But the problem is with lithium ion batteries, once you crack the cells, they dump the entire amount of electricity. So there are elements of that. The problem, like in every other industry, is you have companies that operate the car carriers. They, in turn, will lease their vehicles 
to car companies to transport their cargoes. And very much, it's, it's a lot like the uh, offshore drill operation where you have two, three parties involved. We saw that with the Golden Ray that capsized in Brunswick, where all of a sudden you wanted to file a lawsuit and you had to deal with the ship owner, you had to deal with the car companies that were involved with it, you had to deal with the operators of the vessel, and then you had to deal with the registry country of the ship. It's, it's so hard to get uniform regulation across it. The old standard for maritime shipping is maritime regulations are written in blood. And unfortunately, it usually takes accidents for impetus for law, uh, rule changes to take place. So maybe we'll see it from this. I don't know. We've seen such a proliferation of these car carriers having accidents, stability issues, uh, and yet we still seem to have this happen on a fairly routine basis. Yeah, so 4,700 vehicles feels like a large number to me. Uh, can you help me conceptualize just how much that is within the context of Porsche, Volvo, or just the industry itself in a, in a given month? Like, how big is this shipment, really, is what I'm trying to ask. I, I'm not sure about the individual shipment. I, I do know that there's a pretty continuous line of vessels coming across. So this is a, a fairly routine voyage for these ships. And, and again, these ships operate in a very unique way in that they'll come in, they'll deposit their cargoes and bring vehicles back. So they're, they're running back and forth on the ocean. It's not like they're just exporting cars and bring them in. So I'm not sure what this represents in terms of the volume. I do know from reading the report so far on this that there was a big concern that the line for Volkswagen and Porsche had been held up for quite a while, waiting on ships, waiting on vital uh, essential parts to get these cars finished. And so this loss is going to be a significant loss for Volkswagen Porsche to replace these because these are cars that should have been shipped months earlier, and now they're just getting across. And Sal, as I mentioned earlier, um, you're no stranger to our freight waves, airways, but if people want to reach out, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You have your own platform as well and a great educator. Tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Uh, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Mercagliano S. I'm on LinkedIn. And then I do have a, a YouTube channel where I talk about all about shipping. It's called What's Going On With Shipping. So uh, you're, feel free to kind of join on there and see it. I posted a report last night about this. Got great information from people who are in the industry. And it's a great platform to hear discussions about this. Awesome, Sal. Fantastic stuff, Sal. Uh, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, I mean, keep us in the loop, obviously. And everybody else, go check out Sal's uh, page. <laughs> yeah. Guys, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And keep checking the Red Bull. You only got one more, uh, one more day left. <laughs> Red Bull's in short supply, isn't it? <laughs> they probably are. We've got to get someone from Red Bull. I'll yeah. work on that. I'll work on that. But that was great because some breaking news, something that's happened that's recent. And this is something I was chatting with, um, you know, Steve Ferrer about. Mm -hmm. There's a huge, you know, concentration on, okay, there's going to be a bunch of stuff coming in that there's this backlog on. A point that Steve made, not quite similar to this, but somewhat rhymes with it, is that there's going to be a lot of potentially damaged cargo coming in that we probably right? won't be able to. I think Take it's a fascinating thing when we're talking about like some of this stuff in, in I want to say normal times or the before times uh, would not have been as damaging yeah. as they are now. Uh, I, I think a lot of these mistakes or accidents tend to get exaggerated now yeah. because I mean, think about it, Volvo and Porsche uh, were planning on these. I mean, they're already backlogged. So every uh, disruption really has a magnified impact, right? Yeah, and we talk about this all the time because you want to have your goods there for the consumer to buy. 
because as, as a consumer, if they have options, they're just going to shift to the next thing. And so that's where this idea of just in case of just in time really kind of right. popped off. And so now if I can't get my Porsche Cayman, my 718, my 911, or my... I, we all know you're waiting on your Porsche to come in. This is what, really why I'm you want it I'm waiting on it. <laughs> Maybe instead of that 911, I have to shift to BMW and get a 7 Series. Or maybe I'm going to shift to another, you know, maybe I'll get a Ferrari. Not really. But retail Ferrari. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but, you know, if, if a consumer doesn't have that availability, they're going to shift. And so I, I can only imagine, like you said, yeah. this hit that much harder. Yeah, it's not just the loss shipments. It's the loss of customer, the yeah. potential loss of customer, and, of course, the loss of revenue that pushes that balance sheet a little further out of balance uh, yeah. here and down the road. If you look at Porsche folks, they seem to be very loyal to the brand. And so if you lose one of them, that's going to be a hard hitter because you see some repeat business from these individuals. Yeah. Volvo, really in love with their safety and what they're doing there. So you can potentially leave some, lose some returning customers over a long period of time. But with that, we have to welcome on our next guest, who I am extremely excited about, Grace Sharkey, someone else who is no stranger to our Freightwaves Airways either. Grace, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for letting me follow up Sal. That's always going to be a tough one. So. <laughs> well, you worked with Sal in the past, right? Yeah, yeah. He was on one of our episodes of mm -hmm. Transmission. So that was a nice, friendly face to see. And, you know, real quickly to bring up the, the fact of, like, damaged cargo, it's interesting. I don't live too far from a location where... I'm talking a couple blocks, actually, from a, a large location where they're storing a number of these vehicles that are waiting for semiconductors for GM. Um, I live close to the Lansing plant. And it's funny because I was just thinking about the fact that, I mean, in the last couple of weeks alone, all of these cars are being sleeted on uh, at least a, a foot of snow. Um, it's completely iced today the number of critters that are running around in the area. Um, I've heard about a number of um, issues that a lot of these cars are going to have in regards to their um, electricity and, and just cords and everything with the amount of animals that are running around in this area. So it's funny to think about not just the cars that are coming from overseas, but a lot of these cars right now that are waiting for parts that are coming from overseas that are just currently for the last, geez, I'd say two to three months, um, as far as the eye can see, I've just been sitting in this giant parking lot waiting for conductors in order to ship out to their customers. So I'm interested to see, like, in the next year or two, like, how many of these cars end up coming back and what their actual value is going to be after sitting there for so long. Uh, you make a good point here, because I, I know in the anybody that's in has worked in trucking or a carrier like myself before knows that the parts and the maintenance becomes a critical factor. And you were just talking about how we're waiting on a lot of these parts to come in and you live in a part of the country where that's even more critical, right? Because it's it, yeah. you know, the salt. I mean, I think for people down in the Southern tier of the country, they don't understand. I just learned this not that long ago because I, I just never had to know it, but the salt and the, and the winter weather up there really wreaks havoc on, uh, vehicles up there. So I, I'm curious to see if we see this exaggeration and maintenance and, you know, some of these vehicles uh, having to extend their life because they can't get some of these cars in. Are you seeing anything like that up in your uh, neck of the woods? Not yet, but there's just been people that have been telling me like to really watch these vehicles once they start delivering. I mean, a lot of these people have paid 
top end prices, right? In order to, right. to get these. And they've just been literally sitting out in the elements for a couple of months now and in the worst elements possible. And I mean, today we're going to get hit by a pretty bad storm as well. So it's just, it makes me think, you know, I've heard, I have a couple of people that work the line and I've heard horror stories about how they've gotten around certain things in the past in regards to passing um, test testing to get out of there. You know, how well are these cars going to be tested once they go out for delivery at the end of the day as well? And Grace, one of the things I love that you do is that you really have your finger on the pulse on so many industries. You're all over the place. Um, one of the things I really yeah. want to get your insight on, of course, is around, of course, automotive, but automation. And really, there seems to be a lot of headwinds. So we had, of course, industrial production that came out this morning, showed some increase. But when I look at something like the ISM PMI, one of the big things I'm seeing from respondents is, hey, we can't find enough labor, you know, qualified skilled labor is at a shortage. How do you see this kind of coming to a head in the next couple of years or maybe the next year? How do you see technology potentially play, playing a role here? Do you see that, you know, this labor issue is just going to be an issue for longer than the technology can kind of get ramped up? Or really, do you think this can be really solved sooner rather than later? I think it'd be a really fun case study to watch the type of jobs that OEMs are focused on over the next like 10 to 15 years and how they evolve because of automation making it so much easier to produce these vehicles and um, even the materials that a lot of these vehicles are going to be made out of. Uh, you're moving from a lot of these like hard, hard engineering mechanical type jobs to a lot of what's going to end up being these aftermarket um, service type of jobs, right? You're moving, you're really moving from that, that mechanic to that technological engineer. And it's really interesting. And I'd really love to watch, especially like the area of Detroit and see what type of labor pool they start pulling from. A lot of people that I know have worked the lines in the past are not going to be able to just immediately move to these aftermarket jobs that are focused on, you know, technology and services that these vehicles are now going to have in them. Uh, and, th and they're coming. These OEMs know that there's a lot of training and a lot of investment in a different type of employee than they've had to deal with in the past. So I think that's a really fun area for us to really investigate into is, you know, that transition of, you know, these hard labor, more blue collar jobs to what would be more you know, working from home um, after service, after market jobs that are just going to take a complete different type of person. I mean, it's the same thing that you're going to end up seeing um, in the truck market as well, right? As we move to more of these electric vehicles, it's not going to be the same type of mechanics needed. I mean, I can't tell you how many times in my broker history, like I, whenever I got a driver that was going long miles, I loved knowing that they were a mechanic because if there was a breakdown, they'd be able to fix it. That's not going to be as accessible um, in a electric vehicle market, let alone autonomous vehicles, right? So it's just, it's going to be a really interesting transition uh, going from, I think, more of the 21st century mechanic compared to what people are used to focusing on in the past. Yeah, I mean, since you are kind of this jack of all, master of none, in your own words, uh, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, quite the, <laughs> the uh, you know, which I think the final the end of that quote, which is often left off as, which is sometimes better than one, <laughs> uh, the, uh, 
you know, <laughs> my question to you that I want, I want to kind of make sure that I, I carefully word this is, the automotive industry was already relatively into automation to begin with. What exactly do you see happening with the OEMs uh, that's different than we've seen in the past, especially when you're ta we're talking about supply chain management and stuff like that? We just talked to Mustafa at Zoom about some of these things, you know, that you can do in the back office. But I'm curious because the automotive industry has already kind of had that uh, kind of mentality for years. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what you think that might be in terms of differentiation from what we've seen in the years past? I think the biggest focus you're going to see is kind of like, if you look at factory zero is focusing on the waste management of the industry as a whole. Right. I mean, your OEMs are producing a good that contributes such a huge part of our overall carbon footprint. Right. And so I love seeing how they're working on automating facilities, not just for clearly to, um, to, to do more with less or be more productive, but to have a better carbon footprint at the end of the day as well. And to be able to better manage even just the water consumption that they use. And uh, so that's an area I think is really interesting. And I know just in, in my area with Factory Zero, um, that's interested a lot of um, students in the area of moving over towards that way. But I think the ESG initiative aspect of things is going to be a huge focal point, especially as you look at government kind of pointing the finger now, asking everyone to do better. Um, we'd have to assume that the producers of the biggest part of our carbon footprint are going to want to make sure that they're not just automating for the sake of, of their own, but automating to make sure that there's much less waste in general as well. Grace, amazing insights as always. Can you give us a quick rundown of everything that you're involved in? Because it's great quarter gals, point of sale. And she'll take us out. <laughs> Please, right? how can people find more of your content? <laughs> Uh, well, if you, you know, go to FreightWaves.com, type in Grace Sharkey, you can find my articles there. Um, I, I check out any of my LinkedIn sites, Twitter. I have my nice little bit.ly so you can get um, to all of my articles and content that I'm a part of, Point of Sale, Great Quarter Gals. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I definitely everyone should go to FreightWaves.com slash POS and sign up for the Point of Sale newsletter. I've had a lot of fun with that over the last couple months and um, yeah, I guess check me out on, just come to FreightWaves.com. I'll probably just be on there somewhere. At some point. <laughs> yeah, it won't be hard to find at all. Uh, the point of sale stuff <laughs> that you've taken over, done a fantastic job there. And of course, great quarter gals. I love, I love the, uh, the lady uh, influence coming in strong uh, with you and Kaylee. So fantastic stuff there. Definitely check all that out. Thanks guys. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Grace. Uh, and that's, you know, one of the things that I think we found as a theme over the last, like it doesn't matter if you're in automotive or in, uh, you know, maritime or whatever sector that you're specifically involved in, CPG, um, retail, it's, it's, it's all connected. <laughs> like that, the automotive boat fire is going to disrupt the maritime space and also therefore disrupt your retail, your, your CPG shipments and, you know, these port operations and therefore your surface. And then the consumer also mm -hmm. feels it with inflation and not getting their vehicles and all these behavioral shifts. It, it, like it's all connected into one big pile. Um, and you really can't 
you know, I, I know personally I used to live in a bubble <laughs> thinking I would just sit in this little space and it'd be super safe. But yeah. it's, that's just not the case anymore, right? It's not the case. And <laughs> I, I wish we had more time with Grace because one of the things I was really kind of curious about, kind of bringing in that aspect from Sal and what we're seeing right now with uh, the automotive space, of course, the aspect of nearshoring when it comes right. to automotive. Will there be this huge resurgence with, you know, um, American-made or will we start to see more foreign uh, vehicle makers come to the U.S. to have some of their final facility productions done here. So there is still a lot to dive into here. And, yeah, and not just with the final product, mm -hmm. but with all the parts and the equipment. We're already seeing semiconductors start to show up here. Yeah. Some factories that Arizona. are going to start to show up. I mean, it, it only makes sense. That I guess the big hurdle, Anthony, and you're going to have to talk to this, is the the wages. Like, yeah. it costs more to make stuff here. Is that really going to inhibit our ability to near, reshore, whatever you want to call it. That's going to be the big thing. It's <laughs> going to be a huge inhibitor. I, I mean, <laughs> considering the fact that we're we're already seeing people hop jobs and the wage inflation has to match the inflation rate in order to mitigate it, right? Yeah, the only only real solution from that is going to be um, really... <laughs> I mean, Fraser wants to deflate. He wants to deflate. <laughs> he wants to deflate, which is a very, catastrophic situation, right? It could be. <laughs> and that's a very tricky thing to do in some environments. But really, that's going to kind of push forward the whole notion for tech. And really, and that's another pricey investment, mm -hmm. but like, oh, it's too pricey to hire people? Tech, let's yeah. replace the people with robots. But we have to get to a really quick, important item here before we close out. We have a giveaway of a HomePod Mini. And this one is going to Julie Bolt. Julie, thank, thank you for watch, watching wow. and registering on LiveFreeRoots.com. Yeah. Congratulations on this prize and this giveaway. But stay tuned because there is still more content yet to come. We have a couple fireside chats in the works here, Zach. We have more content and we have an entire day after this. Day. Of like Sal said, drink a Red Bull. <laughs> Red Bull, drink some water with it. This has been Freddonomics. I'm Anthony Smith, lead economist here with Zach Strickland. We'll see you next time.